Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. Once Janet sits down. <laughs> My wife says, if you want to get murdered... Interrupt me when I'm talking to my best friend. So I do this with great, great trepidation. Uh, and in fact, speaking of my wife, I want to show you a picture because some of you have met Barb, and those of you back may have trouble seeing it. But this is us when we were five years old. We actually, we actually met when we were five years old. Uh, I'm the little boy on the left, and she's the little girl who's scowling on your right. <laughs> She was not happy to be sitting between two boys. What's really sad is it kind of looks like her wedding pictures. <laughs> We've been happily married 22 years. We've been married 47, but we've been <laughs> happily married 22. And uh, anybody here from Alabama? So some of you have the unfortunate. Uh, tomorrow you'll be on antidepressants. Because Barb and I are both LSU college graduates. Now, those of you that, those of you that are listening by tape hear the laughter, and it's a Jeep uh, heading away from us with an LSU thing on the tire, and it says college graduate spelled C-O-L-E-G-E. I'm hoping that's a joke, but I'm afraid it may not. It may not be, but we have uh, six kiddos. Uh, four are in heaven. We look forward to meeting them one day, and Kate and Scott are the two the Lord left with us. Kate's on the left with her husband, uh, Charles. If any of you are ever in Colorado Springs and you go to the Focus on the Family bookstore, that's where Kate works, and tell her you know me, and she will give you the friends and family discount of 30%. <laughs> now, if you all go, Focus may have to close the bookstore because they won't have any profit left. And then Scott's the big guy in the middle, and he has Jennifer and our two grandchildren. People say, how many grandchildren do you have? Have. And I say, not enough. <laughs> They're sweet. Uh, everything that I'm going to say today is in a handout, and so you can get both the handout and perhaps even more importantly, a slew of reference articles. I have permission to give you all of them. We'll go through parts of them as we go through, but if you just write me my email address, it's my name, Walt Laramore, W-A-L-T-L-A-R-I-M-O-R-E, with no space, at Mac.com. W-A-L-T-L-A-R-I-M-O-R-E, at Mac.com. And I'll be happy to send you both the handout and the articles. There is a CME disclosure. I have none. There are CME learning objectives. We had to do this for scientific reasons. But then we have the real reasons that, uh, that I have this privilege of sharing. And that is that after this session, you would become aware of how you can be an everyday missionary. Some of you youngsters are in school and you're in training. And I've met with you for 25 years here. And you tell me how excited you are to train for the mission field in five years or seven years or whenever. I'm here to train you for the mission field for Monday. How can you be a missionary where God has planted you? How to take a spiritual assessment with patients and with friends in a coffee shop. And how to pray with patients or how to pray with friends when indicated. And then how to form a spiritual team. So with those being our real goals, and we do have CME credit, we may not after this, but we will pray. So. <laughs> 
Father, thank you for the privilege of calling us into your kingdom. Thank you that you call us friend. And thank you as brothers and sisters, we can listen to your word, to your spirit, and to each other. As we discover your will for abiding in us and through us and bearing fruit in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So two references for the material I'm going to share with you. One is Greg Femke's book, Joining Jesus on His Mission, How to Be an Everyday Missionary. Uh, it's a great little, tiny little book. It's not real big, but chock full of principles that you can share with a small group or a Sunday school class or a fellowship group. And then the course that I co-wrote with uh, Dr. Bill Peel on the practicalities of bringing spiritual interventions into everyday practice, irrespective of where God calls you in healthcare, And that's called Grace Prescriptions. And at the CMDA uh, booth, you can learn more uh, about that. But to begin our time together, I would like you to think of something that was revolutionary for me when my mentors, a fellow named Dr. Paul Brand, some of you may know the name of Paul Brand. Paul was a missionary. He and, and his wife in India for three decades came back to Louisiana, where I was in school. I, was, I went to med school at Harvard on the bayou. That's what we call LSU. After, after Katrina, it was Harvard under the bayou. But that's a different thing. But Dr. Brand encouraged uh, the Christian medical students at LSU, both of us, uh, to look at our work as worship. And the folks that right now have done a real good job with that. I want you just to look a couple minutes of this concept. Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the 9 to 5 with, packing crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, Work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a dream. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, 
We choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship. And Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship. Isn't that a neat concept? Isn't that a neat concept? In the back, are you hearing okay? Does that... Okay, Jennifer, we may need to get some help from the AV folks. What I'll do on the next video is I'll actually hold it closer to the speaker, and you let me know whether that works or doesn't work for, for that. So uh, if fellowship is every activity that we have with believers, evangelism is every activity we have with nonbelievers. It's not, persu- you hear this, it's not persuading someone to pray a prayer. It's having a cup of coffee with someone. And that's not watering down evangelism. It's just saying every interaction we have can, with, with non-believers can be a chance to be salt and light. To meet them where they're at and to love them where they're at. And if there's one thing that non-believers and believers share in common, it is that they both hate evangelism. At least that pushy, try to sell you something evangelism. But people don't hate love, and they don't hate respect, and they don't hate service. They don't hate when they come in with an itch and you scratch it. And I want you to know that this isn't about a lot of techniques and a lot of how-tos. It's about how to love Jesus and let him love through you. And he already loves the people we're going to meet more than we do. And all we need to do is to bring them together. So he's already doing everything necessary to make us participate in his work, not our work, his work of drawing people to himself. We just have to kind of rethink how we do this. And this has not been missiology for the last 125 years, although it was before that. And that is, what are you up to? Just asking yourself, Jesus, what are you up to today in my life? And what are you up to in the life of those that you bring into my life? It's looking through the muck of the day-to-day activity for those pearls, those divinely designed appointments. And I can tell you, at least my experience, that when I began to go through those patient visits, looking for the divine appointments, life became an awful lot more fun and interesting. Where is God already at work, and where does he want to join me? And then ask him, how would you have me join you in your work with those you bring into my life today? Where you've currently planted me? Not the mission field in five years, but in school where you are now, or in the neighborhood that you are in now, or the dorm you're in now. And what I want to tell you is, it's not all about you. It's all about Him. It's not proficiency in procedures or performance. It's not skills or systems or style. It's not intelligence or ingenuity or inventiveness. It's not your expertise or your efficiency or even your experience, youngsters. It's not based on that. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not your way. It's Yahweh. It's just simply Joining him in his work, along with his word, his spirit, and his spirit-filled saints. 
This is not adding more to your day. It's not about overwork. It's about overflow. How can you slosh out? Let him slosh out where you're called. So five practices for everyday missionaries. And I told Jennifer, who's volunteering in the room, who has nothing to do with health care except pay her appointments. I said, Jennifer, this is for you. Because all of, our, all of us as believers can apply this information. Number one, every day, hear from Jesus. Number two, seek first the kingdom of God. Number three, have meaningful spiritual conversations with people. Do good. Number four, do good in Jesus' name. And number five, when indicated and with permission, minister with prayer. So I'm going to dissect these quickly in general, and then I want to go back and filter some medical applications for you to consider for those of you that are in healthcare. So hearing from Jesus is simply the practice of hearing from Jesus. It's spending daily time in his word and praying without ceasing. And if you tell me, like some of my students do, I don't have time for this, then I will say to you what I say to them. Do you pee? (laughs) Let me restate that. Do you urinate? And they look at me like I've got two heads. Well, of course. In other words, you find time to do what you must. You find time to do what is necessary. Don't tell me you don't have time. What you're telling me is it's not important. Or it's not a priority. That's okay. If it's not, it's not. But don't say you don't have time to spend time in his word. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Well. So, and secondly, hearing from Jesus demands two elements. And uh, I love this. I do spiritual retreats. One was a, re- a silence of re- a retreat in Atlanta at Ignatius House. And uh, there's this little sign that says, to hear from Jesus requires only two things. Listen and silent. And they say, these two words have the same letters. Coincidence? Maybe not. Hearing from Jesus, he speaks through his word, through his spirit, through other people, other believers, even non-believers, even rocks. (laughs) He speaks through your circumstances, and he speaks through his creation. I love this in Mark 7, 9. God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my prayer for myself. I call it the prayer of Samuel. It's from 1 Samuel 3.10. The prayer of Samuel is this. Speak, for your servant is listening. Some of you are real busy. Some of you are OCD like me. Some of you are easy to distract. Listening has been a hard discipline for me. To learn to listen to the Lord. You cannot, you cannot serve him if you don't listen to your king, to your master. Now, a lot of you younger folks and some of you in middle age are asking, well, you're at this conference, you're looking at opportunities and you're looking at exhibits and exhibitors and you're saying, what's God's will for me? I'm so glad you're here. I can tell you exactly what God's will is for you. You ready? Exactly. There's only two things that you have to know. One is called the who, and the other one is called the do. No, this is not a uh, makeup lesson or or about a rock band. But it's God's will 
that you should be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. That's God's will for you. It's to live according to God's design and purpose, one concordance says. And what is the chief end of God's people, the Westminster Confession asks? God's people are to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That means starting today. God's will is that you should be sanctified, live according to his design and his purpose. God cares far more about your who than your do. You get that? You're a human becoming more Christ-like. And that's key. Because you absolutely cannot do without who. Doesn't matter where you go. You cannot do without who. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do a few things. No, no, that was not accurate. Apart apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You can do no things of eternal significance apart from him. Nothing is like a zero with the rim kicked off. Nothing. And he added, the Son, the Son, Jesus incarnate, God incarnate, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. So number one's your who. Number one's your who. Rick Donlin this weekend is going to be talking about that in his sessions, about the who of God's will. The do of God's will is pretty simple. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will? Be sanctified. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So each morning and throughout each day, spiritual breathing, just like physical breathing, is that constant contact with, uh, with Jesus each morning and throughout each day. Number one, hearing from Jesus. Number two, seek first the kingdom of God. And that's the practice of seeking first the kingdom of God, being on the lookout for what God is already showing you every day in the midst of your daily routines. It means in the morning putting on your spiritual antennas as you look for uh, intentionally look for what he's doing, what he's already doing, to find those little sparks and to fan them as you go through your day in those divine appointments. Seek first his kingdom, Jesus said, and his righteousness. And the other stuff comes. The other stuff will be added, like Christmas ornaments on a tree. But the ornaments don't look very good if you don't have the tree. Your due is related to your who? Having conversations with people. It's the practice of intentionally seeking relationships with non-believers. Going where they are. And boy, is that easy to do in medicine, right? I have a friend who's a pastor who says, there is a distance between the pulpit and the pew. That does not exist at the bedside. When people get sick, they begin to think about God. There was that wonderful study that was done by the National Traffic Safety Administration where they put uh, little black boxes in all GM cars, or in most GM cars. They also had a little microphone in the 
and the cab. And so it was a loop recorder of 30 seconds. If there was any fatal accident in any state, the state patrol knew they would enter the VIN of the car, and then they would uh, find out if it had one of these black boxes. The computer would tell them where it was in the car. They would get it and send it to to, uh, to the National Traffic Safety Administration. When they evaluated the data, they found that in 49 of the states, the vast majority of people, before they died, said, Oh, my God. Except uh, Arkansas. And there, the majority of people, before they died, said, Here, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> Apologize to Arkansonians. Um, that wasn't really a true study. I just... I was just fibbing about that. But, but seeking to have conversations with the pre-believers that God brings into your life. So uh, my favorite name of Jesus, he's got a lot of really cool names, but my favorite name is that he was called a friend of sinners. And I'm thankful that he is my friend. The Son of Man, this is Matthew 11:19, came eating and drinking, and they say that the, the religious... Right? The relig- not the religious right, but the religious correct said, here he is, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, if you had three years to do ministry, would you take time off and just go sit in a pub with guys that did- didn't have any interest in things spiritually? I mean, it kind of doesn't sound like the right strategy, does it? He hadn't read Maxwell's books about having that one year and three year and five year and ten year. Was it right to do that? And I love, I love the verse. The verse goes on to say, Wisdom is proved right by their deeds. The fruit was that those he reached out to and those he discipled changed the world. The fourth practice is to do good. To do good in the name of Jesus. It's the practice of meeting needs in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make the kingdom and grace of God a little more real to the people he brings into your Life. It is going into your day, for me, it's going into my day empowered by the Holy Spirit, but leaving the results to God. The sociologic data tell us that an adolescent and adult converts to Christ will name between 9 and 25 significant relationships that touch their journey. You don't have to be all 25. The main and median is 16. But healthcare professionals can, with very few words, have huge impact. And that's been shown in the seatbelt data and the tobacco recidivism data that, that little eight and five second interactions can change people forever as a healthcare professional. Mother Teresa said, not all, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And the greatest lover in the universe inhabits you and wants to shine through you. You are a cracked pot. Sorry to tell you, but you are. But those cracks allow the treasure that resides within you to shine freely out. For you are God's handiwork. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And God has prepared these in advance for you to do. It's joining him at his work. It's joining Yahweh on God's way, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, leaving the results to him. And then the fifth 
principle of being an everyday missionary is learning how to minister with prayer. So the practice of prayer, it's not so much about getting the words right or having it exactly memorized. It's just simply inviting the king of the universe into the needs or troubles or distress of those whom we get to meet and, and work with. So Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. <clears throat> but in every appointment, well, he didn't say every appointment. He said in every consult. Well, no, he didn't say every consult, but he did say in every opportunity, in every opportunity, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In every situation, walking into that exam room, walking into that ER, walking into the OR, walking into the clinic where you are, to be able to bathe that with prayer. Just the same way that you breathe. <clears throat> so, five general practices for being an everyday missionary, wherever God has called you. Hear from Jesus. Seek first the, the kingdom of God. Have conversations with folks. Uh, do good and minister through prayer. So, kind of cool stuff. Now, let's take this to healthcare. Healthcare conference. So, let's take this to healthcare. Why become a healthcare missionary? Here's just some answers to that question by some folks that we interviewed for the original saline solution. Uh, you'll see in this Frank Young, who's a former commissioner of the FDA, and then some of you will remember uh, C. Everett Coop when he was Surgeon General. You'll also see, see him. I don't think it's possible under any circumstance to separate health and faith. We are, after all, human beings who at times get ill. Our Lord has made our bodies so that as physicians, we tinker on the margins, but it's really the natural processes of healing that really take over. To forget the spiritual dimension leaves each of us as a physician bankrupt. To have a chance to really make an eternal difference along with the physical stuff, you know, that's, that's important. I was just so pleased that, that uh, after I knew who I was and where I'd been and where I was going, that I was in a profession where I could use not only my medical skills uh, in the healing of people, but that I had the opportunity to be a Christian witness. Uh, there's no better place to do it than medicine. You know, I, uh, they say that doctors and bartenders are the people you tell your troubles to, but I was always better with the bartender. <laughs> We can, we can treat their pneumonias, we can treat any of their symptoms a lot of times, but to offer them true eternal life is the only thing that really matters. And so if you're a Christian you take your ministry seriously in medicine, offering them some piece of your faith and just seeing where they're at and showing them what they really need is the only answer that really matters. Well, this is uh, really why I went into medicine. Uh, it was not only to help people physically, but really ultimately to help them spiritually which is the only thing that really matters, the only thing that's going to last. So really for me, it's been uh, fulfilling the dream that I had when I started medical school. Uh, as a practicing physician, it took me from being a doctor who happens to be a Christian to being a Christian who happens to be a doctor. And it completely changed the way I approached my practice to medicine. And it's interesting that our own experience in this field uh, is now being confirmed by research. Because research shows that when you deal with patients on a spiritual realm, they indeed do heal better 
and they feel better, and indeed you are finally treating the whole person, the whole patient. And doctors who do this, I think, are just satisfying an obligation, not only an obligation to medicine, but also an obligation to God. And I think it's extraordinarily important that we live up to what is the expectation that our whole community has, that when you see a doctor, you're being treated for all of your problems at the same time. And they want to know that they're being taken care of by a physician who's not just technically capable, but also understands that in any illness there is a spiritual component. And that's part of the healing process. We need to be complete physicians in looking at more than just a tiny part of the patient. I think every doctor uh, understands this, but he may not uh, put it in my words if he hasn't got a Christian background. And that is, man is a trinity. He is a soul. He occupies a body and he has a spirit. And therefore, there is physical medicine, and there is emotional medicine, and there is spiritual medicine. And you never should use one for the other. It doesn't work. And so, when you need psychiatry, you need psychiatry. When you need spiritual counseling, you need spiritual counseling. But if you want to treat the whole patient, you use all three, and you use them all at the same time. There's two things that I would say. The first is to be competent in your medical practice. Being a spirit-filled Christian is no excuse for sloppy medicine. But second, since most of us only have a limited armamentarium, at least I knew about 40 medicines really well, and I had to go in the back room to look up some of the others, but those I knew. I've advocated that we really have about a spiritual armamentarium of about 40 verses. It's critical that both the spiritual and the medical needs be met. Nobody can do that more than a physician. Now, for many docs, this is awful hard. We feel that maybe we're invading in the privacy of a person's relationship. Maybe this is something we shouldn't say. But if we're convinced, if we're convinced that there is eternity, and if we're convinced that knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the most important decision to make, it would be malpractice, in my opinion, not to bring forward the spiritual dimension When I first had the privilege of meeting Dr. Young, I said, could I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, you were commissioner of the FDA. He said, I was. I said, you only knew 40 drugs, huh? He said, I had a lot of, God, a lot of good people under me doing the trick. So, Dr. Coop and Dr. Young, by the way, for those of you who are not doctors, who are not physicians and dentists, they talk about the data. I'm going to show you data and, and give you sources. Forget the word doctor or physician or dentist. Plug in healthcare professional because this applies to all of us, every single one of us. And research is rapidly accumulating. I could change this to say from tens of thousands of studies that demonstrates an extremely strong link, a strong association between spiritual health and physical health, emotional health, and relational health. They're all linked. But that spiritual link is especially strong. For those of you who are interested in kind of 
the gold standard for that data. It's the Oxford University Handbook of Religion and Health, the second edition. They're working on the third edition now. The second edition came out in 2012. It's about three and a half inches thick and and refers to over 17,000 of the best studies. But Dr. Koenig at at Duke has, has... uh, simplified that for us. He's reduced that, if you would, into an article called Religion, Spirituality, and Health, the Research and Clinical Implications. And that article will be in your handout. And then I also did a systematic review called Should Clinicians Incorporate Positive Spirituality into Their Practices? What Does the Evidence Say? And that handout is also in your, uh, in your article. That article is also in your handouts. For those of you who would like to see a deeper presentation that Dr. Peel and I did on the clinical case for spiritual interventions, that's available online. It's, uh, the website is vimeo, V-I-M-E-O dot com slash 1927-3255. That's vimeo.com slash 1927-30255. But to give you just a very simple graphic on the growth of, of these articles, uh, this graph shows you both a, 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 a look back on Medline and Google Scholar. These are three-year aliquots of the total number of studies looking at spiritual health issues in that three-year. And the main point here is that the growth is explosive. Now, this curve only goes through 2012. And I talked to Dr. Koenig several months back, and I said, have you done the count since? And he said, no. But my, my gestalt, he says, is that this is just going up and up and up. And you can see in the last aliquot of three years that the Google Scholar uh, database had almost 7,600 articles just in that three years. And it's just going. And as a result of the literature showing that association between morbidity and mortality and spiritual health or uh, religious distress or spiritual distress, our secular colleagues are beginning to get more interested in, wow, how do we do this and why do we do this and, and how important is it as a social determinant? You may have heard that term in space, in, 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 in uh, patient care. But for followers of Jesus, it's more than just the data. It's our calling. It's our calling to do this. But the data backs us up. And those articles can, can give you that, that data support. So everyday missionary means we are not health professionals who are called to be Christian. But we're Christians who are called to be healthcare professionals. In other words, what's primary for you? Are you primarily a healthcare professional who just happens to be Christian? Or do you love Jesus? Are you a follower of him? Does he invade and capture and captivate your heart? And do you feel he's ready to be released in and through you? Uh, Ray Hammond is a a physician, a Harvard-trained internist who's also a bivocational pastor. And at a conference on the workplace uh, workplace, uh, uh, work and faith in, in the Faith in the Workplace National Conference. He had a real nice talk. And this is just a little five-minute snippet of, of him. But as you listen to Ray, let me ask you to listen to the Lord about his calling for you. And I may have to... It's 1971, and the... Um, college senior 
me. Uh, at the time, I had a full head of hair, quite a bushy afro, as a matter of fact, and a beard. I'm trying to decide what's the next step in life for me. I come to college and I'm going through the requisite changes and uh, concentrations and majors. Going through the requisite uh, crises of faith, wondering if this thing that my parents had passed on to me really could stand the test of time. Did it really fit me? Did it mean anything in a context where colonialism is falling, segregation is being challenged, structures are being upended? But to my amazement, Jesus really did make sense. Now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And so I went to the wisest person in many respects at that stage, and the person I saw really could help me discern that, it was my pastor's wife, and we're sitting in the kitchen trying to decide, what do I do? Do I do a good job? Do I take some time off? Do I travel, perhaps? Do I pursue some of the things in the arts that I'm interested in? Um, or do I go after medicine, which is what I came to college for originally? And she utters a word that really is transformative for me, a few words, and she says to me, I want you to remember that it's really not a career in medicine. It's a call to a ministry of healing. If you'll keep that straight, you'll be okay. She was absolutely right. Her response was not so much a counsel as it was to set a context, to remind me that as a follower of Jesus, in the world of work, I had to be driven not by the notion of career, but by the notion of calling. And that my life's work would be to figure out that calling and to apply it and be faithful to it and exercise it. I think that that's really at the nexus of putting faith and work together. I think we need to get away from career. I don't like the word anyway. You follow it and its origin from old French and so on. It's about racing, racing, running around in circles at top speed, sometimes going nowhere. And that seems to be often what career really is about. Calling, though, has some other components to it. And I'm not talking about the eerie, sort of mystical things. I mean the notion that the Lord has put me someplace and the Lord has a purpose for my being there. There's something I bring there. There's something that God has put in me that's supposed to be used in that place, in that setting, in that context. I'm called to be there. I love that poet that declared that uh, that gift of time is so important. Only just a minute, only 60 seconds in. Really got to use my time because I'm called. Now, at the same time, uh, once I understand that I'm called, as I enter into that workplace, I really have to begin to decide how do I really exercise that call? How do I become used as an instrument of God? I think one of the things that's key is that we have to be convinced that we really do have something to share. Jesus was convinced and convicted about that, and he declares in Matthew, the fifth chapter, you are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. And this really does presume that people are out there looking for light, and I discovered that that turns out to be true. I found that in co-workers, as a resident in the hospital, who are often struggling with issues of meaning in life and trying to figure out how to balance all of the competing demands on their time, including family and friendship and justice in the world, 
I found that people really were looking for light, patience. They wanted the person who was just about to cut them open to at least pray with them. They wanted to be sure that perhaps you had some guidance that went even beyond your training in medicine. I found it very much in uh, judges later on as I began to work both in medicine and then later as a pastor. who sat me down in the chambers and once said to me something that was really profound. He says, I'm very clear about what it is that I can and can't do. I can restrain people, but I don't change people. If you do what you've been called to do, that's your job. This gospel really does transform people. So we have to have a conviction that, in fact, we've got something to share and something to give the world. And I think that Bill Peel and Walter Lamour are absolutely right. We have to earn the right to be heard. And I think it's really true. Our lives always come before our lips. One of our great tragedies sometimes with Christian faith is we so undo the words we speak with the actions that we perform. I love Ray Hammond. So to begin to put ornaments on the tree, the do on the who that you are, there's a variety of interventions that you can consider utilizing in healthcare as you bring Christ to work with you every day. Now, those of you that go through residencies and advanced training, it takes a long time to learn everything you need to learn. And so I'm not going to suggest that you do all of these Monday, but just give you an idea of the waterfront so that you can begin to ask God, what would you have me apply where I am planted? And so one way of looking at this is that these are kind of assessments, uh, uh, interventions that can be used, but some of them for everybody and some only for, for particular people. On the bottom, praying for patients. That's something we can do without consent for every patient that we have. Doing a spiritual assessment is something that we can do with most or all of the patients we have. And then faith flags, faith stories, faith prescriptions are a way of bringing God into our communication. Fewer and fewer patients as we go up these interventions. Praying with patients, whether it's some patients or, or all patients. Beginning to learn how to do spiritual consults and spiritual referrals, just like we do consults for everything else that we're not trained to take care of or don't know how to handle or need help. Spiritual, why would we do any different with spiritual? Learning how to tell our personal faith story when indicated and with permission. And how do we share the gospel in healthcare, as busy as we are? And then uh, how can we have gospel conversation? Well, that's what Grace Prescriptions course is all about. It's a 14-hour course. It's available on video. You can do it with small groups or you can do it by, your, by yourself. But I want to just give you a few kind of walk through this, uh, this field and just let you look at, at a few of the interventions. So when it comes to hearing from Jesus, let me skip through this by just telling you, you know, we talked earlier about uh, hearing Jesus as a part of everyday activity. Well, when my partner, I was practicing in Kissimmee, Florida at the time, a fellow named John Hartman. John and I were beginning to learn together how to bring spiritual interventions into our practice. And so we, were, we developed a spiritual history. We were praying with some patients. We developed a spiritual consult team. And then at the end of each day, we'd have a little get-together to talk about, just kind of touch base, whichever was, was on call, who was in the hospital that night, was anybody in labor, did we have any surgery coming up, you know. But John would say, well, how many spiritual interactions did you have today? And I'd go, 
like none. Because you just get busy doing what you're doing. Now, just one part of me, and so my nurse heard this. Leticia is wonderful. And so she took these little three-by-five cards, and she wrote W-I-G-D on them. And then she put that on each little chart box. And what it means is, what is God doing? And it was how she trained me that when I opened the door to go into the exam room, or I opened the door to go into a birthing suite, or into the ER, or began to scrub at the OR sink, to ask, what is God doing in this patient's life? And how can I join him there? It's his work, not my work. It's Yahweh, not my way. So how do we do this without ceasing? Praying without ceasing. And I love this. This is from former U.S. Senate chaplain Barry Black. He says, the Greek word translated without ceasing does not mean non-stop. It actually means constantly recurring. So just throughout the day, sprinkled throughout the day. In other words, he says, we can punctuate our everyday moments with intervals of recurring prayer. I found this wonderful sermon called Pray Without Ceasing. It was written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he said this, every secret wish is a prayer. Every house is a church. The corner of every street is a closet of devotion. Could we change this to say, every patient visit is a prayer. Every hospital a church. The nurse's station or the scrub sink, a closet of devotion. Can we change how we're thinking so that we can pray for our patients? Listening to God by praying before each visit. Lord, what are you doing? And how can I come alongside? And sometimes that means reading the strep test and writing the penicillin prescription. But I'm going to show you in a minute why that is a holy activity. Not talking about strep, but but anyway. (laughs) Number two, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to it. So God grants us a tremendous privilege as healthcare professionals. He has committed to us, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. I'm not sure it's the sound system I would have chosen if I was him. But he chooses you to be his hands and his lips. He chooses you to be his ambassador. He chooses you to make his appeal to them. And you're very busy. And the demands on you are huge. How can you do that? How can you do it? Well, first, you've got to want to. You've got to know he wants you to, and you've got to want to. And there is a huge benefit to this. This comes out of Philemon 1.6. Philemon only has one chapter, so some people say Philemon 6. It's in the 1984 NIV. Paul says this, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Why? So that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Anybody here not want to have more understanding of Christ? Not to, anybody here that doesn't want to love him more deeply? Or more sweetly. 
He says, if you want to know me, you've got to share me. I've left you here for a reason. And part of it's suffering, and part of it's persecution, and part of it's just time and getting to know me. But part of it is sharing me. Because as you do that, you come to know me in a far different way than you could. In other words, as we make him known, we come to know him more deeply and sweetly. I have a precious letter from my mentor, Dr. Brand, and he says this. In the medical profession, we do have a matchless, wonderful opportunity to meet people at times of their real need. When they're ready to open up their hearts and expose their fears and worries and concerns. And you're going to find that to be true if you haven't already. That even in the dental world, even people that just have a sore tooth begin to think about eternal things. Women who are pregnant and deliriously happy to be pregnant begin to think about eternal things. If they have no spirituality whatsoever. And who meets them? Healthcare professionals. And most all of them assume you don't care about them spiritually until you somehow communicate that. Open that door just a little bit. And some of them will invite you in. But you don't know if you don't ask. So how do you ask? How do you know where someone is spiritually? Well, that's the purpose of a spiritual assessment or a spiritual history. And Module 5 of Grace Prescriptions is the importance of a spiritual history to quality patient care. That Vimeo is vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O dot com, slash 1928-64823. So vimeo.com slash 192-864-823. But the principle is that you can't prescribe treatment if you don't know the disease. So when we started teaching these principles, it was called the saline solution. It was based upon the fact that when we walk into an emergency situation, we just don't say, start an IV of 3% saline. That's stupid. I mean, it can kill people. Some people, I mean, some neonates will use 3%. Some will use 1.5%. Some will use 0.9% normal saline. Some will use half normal. Some will use D5W. Some will use lactated ringer. Some we don't use an IV at all. Why? We find out what the patient's problem is, and we prescribe the treatment that's appropriate, that's indicated. So we don't walk in to the ICU and look at a patient and say, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'll spend eternity? They go, what do you know that I don't know? (laughs) It's just finding out where they are in their journey and joining them there. And joining them there. So healthcare professionals should prayerfully consider the stage of a patient's spiritual journey. And then what interventions are appropriate? They may not want anything. Or they may be open. But you will not know till till you ask. Now, there's an article on spiritual assessment. There's several in the handout. But the evidence-based reasons, the reasons that the Joint Commission requires a spiritual assessment on every admission, the reason that ACGME requires every resident to learn, medical resident, to learn to do 
a spiritual assessment. The reason that 15 national guidelines on patient care require a spiritual assessment, regardless of the healthcare professional's spirituality, number one, patients desire it. The vast number of patients desire that you know where they are in their spiritual journey. There's patient benefit to, to you knowing. It enhances the healthcare professional physician relationship, uh, the healthcare professional patient relationship. It's a standard and quality patient care, and it identifies any areas of religious struggle. Perhaps the most exciting area of growth and research now is that people who are having religious struggle have dramatically increased risk of morbidity and mortality. And it's now a national guideline that we find out about religious struggle. We won't be discussing how to do that today, but in Grace Prescriptions and in the articles we do. But a spiritual history is just a form of high-quality, evidence-based, whole-person care required by the Joint Commission for Patients Cared For in Hospitals, Nursing Homes, or Home Health Agency. To learn the basics of doing a basic spiritual assessment, I have a review of the literature and a how-to article in Today's Christian Doctor. It's the Spiritual Assessment and Clinical Care Part 1. It's in your article handout that you'll get. But the basic idea is that as part of your social history, when you're asking about family history and you're asking about tobacco or alcohol or drug or firearms or seatbelts or whatever's in your social history, that you add a very simple and easy-to-use spiritual history. You open the door, if you would, and invite conversation. So open the door to a spiritual conversation. One group of authors said, they recommend you say, may I ask about your faith background? Do you have a spiritual or faith preference? I'm not saying you use one question or the other. I'm saying figure out what fits your personality, your temperament, and your practice style. When I teach in Tulsa, we now have a spiritual curriculum where the residents, uh, well, we have a curriculum where residents learn various skills and then have to demonstrate competency. And spiritual history now is in that competency. You cannot finish residency until you dip demonstrate competency in performing a, a spiritual history. And so we, we're always using this, may I ask about your, your faith background, and one of our behavioralists said, why do you ask that? And I said, well, Joel, why wouldn't we? It's a sensitive area, and, you know, we're getting permission. He said, but this is evidence-based. There's national standards. You don't say, may I ask about your alcohol intake? May I ask about your tobacco use? You just ask. People trust that you know what you're doing. And of all of our 89,000 graduates of Grace Prescriptions, there's only one or two that have ever had one patient say, why are you asking that? People just feel you. From my own personal experience, I have a mentor for the last 35 years named Bill Judge. Bill's a dairy farmer in Kissimmee, Florida. And when we started doing spiritual histories, we, uh, John and I were the only ones that did it because we were worried people were going to have negative reactions or kind of explosive reactions. And after a few weeks, nobody did. And I was telling Bill, I said, well, nobody's even fur to brow. And he said, did you think they would? And I said, I did. I really thought I'd kind of get some, some of these old ranchers irritated. And he said, why? And I said, well, these are kind of weird questions. He goes, y'all ask lots of weird questions. <laughs> Well, I got defensive. I said, like what? And he said, well, like when I came in last month for my wellness visit, Tish asked me, my nurse, 
Tish asked me how many sexual partners I had in the last year. <laughs> I've been married 40 years. She asked me how many sexual partners I had in the last year. That was a weird question. I said, but I had to think a second. Was it zero or one? <laughs> Bill lets me share that. He was just kidding with me. Now, you can find lots of spiritual histories. There's over 325 internally and externally validated spiritual assessments in the literature, some of them as long as 300 questions. You've got time to use it. You go for it. But I'm only going to give you one. It's three questions, and it's just the God questions. God, others, and do. Easy, easy, peasy to, to, to do. So the God is, can I ask, do you have any faith or, or spiritual preferences? Do you now, uh, uh, is God, faith, prayer, spirituality something that's important to you or not? I mean, you, you pick one that kind of fits, that fits you. Uh, and uh, if the answer is yes, well, it's just like tobacco. So you say, do you use tobacco products? And someone says yes, what do you do? Well, how much and how often? You know, you ask a little bit more. If they say no, you move on. So that's the God question. The O is others. Do you now, or have you ever been part of a spiritual community or a faith community? Or in Kissimmee, we'd say, you ever went to church? I mean, you know, at that point there were no synagogues or temples in, in that town. And if someone says, I do, or I did, well, how often? And how important is that to you? And is that community one that's supportive or positive or, or negative? I'm doing occupational medicine now at the University of Colorado. And we, when I joined, the university didn't use the spiritual history. And I asked one of our senior vice presidents, I said, aren't we Joint Commission certified? And she said, yes. And I said, we're missing a Class A certification. And she's very interested now. Like, what? <laughs> I said, we don't do a spiritual history. She said, that's, that's Class A. I said, that's, that's a big one. So she looked into it. She found out it was. She came back and said, how do we do this? And now the University of Colorado has a... Spiritual history as part of its intake uh, exam for, you know, for, for each patient. But I, so I had a guy that was in not too long ago, and uh, is God, faith, prayer, something that's important to you? And he said, oh, yeah, very important, very important. I said, are you now, you ever been part of the faith community? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, I go to church all the time. I mean, all the time. Every Easter and every Christmas, she makes me go. <laughs> okay, but it's probably not all the time, but it's okay. And then the do, and once again, just some suggested questions. Pick what you want. But how do I, how do I incorporate your, if someone is religious, how do I incorporate your faith into your care? What do I need to know about your religious beliefs as I care for you? Uh, is there anything I can, do you need to speak to a pastoral professional? Uh, is it okay if I pray with you? Or have others pray with you, or have others pray for you, just depending on what your what your system is. Uh, another article said this on spiritual assessment: the do questions. Is there a way in which you would like for us to account for spirituality in your care, or not? You know, is there a way we can provide spiritual support, or not? Are there resources in your faith community you would like for me to help mobilize? Does your faith community need to know you're here? Under HIPAA, the, the, the institution can't tell the faith community. It used to all the time, but it can't anymore. But you can spur that with an order to do that. And so that's the basic spiritual history. But what about the person who's having spiritual distress? What about the person who believes that their illness is because God does... These are for religious people now. I'm not saying Christians. 
But I say people who have a religiosity or a spirituality to them. And when they get sick, the questions that they begin to ask is, do I have this because God does not love me? Or do I have this because God has abandoned me? Or higher power or, or whoever. You know. Or do I, have I asked for healing and my higher power has said no or wait? Or, this is very common in Muslim communities, is Allah punishing me for my illness? I call them the lap factors. Love, abandonment, and punishment. And people who have a religious struggle question are at a 16 to 28% increased risk of mortality in the next 24 months. It's stunning data. And you will not know if they have religious struggle, if you do not ask. So for those of you who have been doing spiritual assessments or are comfortable with a basic spiritual assessment, kind of the advanced assessment now I call the Lord's Lap. adds three questions to the, to the, to the social history question. And that's found in, the, in part two of spiritual assessments and clinical care. That article is in the handout also. So I won't spend time today going into it. But... If you do a spiritual history and you find religious struggle, that almost always um, necessitates a referral to someone who's trained to handle that. It may be a chaplain. It may be a pastoral professional. It may be even someone of their faith community, not necessarily Christian, who's comfortable handling religious struggle. Remember, we're meeting them where they're at. Coming to Jesus for an adult or an adolescent is many, many steps. M-A-N-Y-M-I-N-I. Nobody, virtually nobody, makes it in one fell swoop. Now, there are Muslims who, with dreams and visions, are coming in one fell swoop. And God's moving in amazing ways. But for most, it's those little many, many steps. And we come alongside and help them make one step. So where I was practicing a little hick town in Florida... Three uh, Buddhist monks moved in. They were women monks of a particular order and set up a little temple. So my partner and I went to them to see if they'd be part of our spiritual help team. And the head monk, which is, oh, they were all real small. She said, why are you asking us? I said, well, why wouldn't I? She said, everybody knows you're a Christian. I said, well, everybody knows you're a Buddhist. <laughs> and you're going to have people coming to you, and some of them are going to get sick. And if they want you to come alongside, I just want to know, do you want to do that? They said, well, yeah, we want to do that. And how do I reach you? And do you want them to come to you or do you want to come to them? And is this a service you charge for or not? None of our pastoral professionals charge. Her first congregate that came in was a woman who was spiritually searching, but she got acute cholecystitis from a dropped a gallstone into her common duct. We're a little hospital. We didn't have ERCP, invasive radiology, basketing, that sort of thing. It just called the surgeon, you know. And the indication for surgery at that hospital was you had to be breathing, you had to have insurance. But <laughs> then he was all right. So I did a spiritual history. This woman had started going to the Buddhist church. So under the D part, I said, would you like me to call one of the monks, one of your worship leaders to come in? She said, you would? And I said, why wouldn't I? And she said, you're Christian. I said, you're Buddhist. <laughs> and her... Her uh, monk came in. What I remember was standing there charting. And those of you who've done intensive care or OB nursery, you know the, 
the beep, you know, the beeps, you know, on the monitor. And she's tacking it along 140, 150. Surgeon doesn't care. But in general, if their heart rate can be normal, you kind of like that in surgery. But what I remember was when the monk came in, greeted me, and then walked over to her, took her hand, and they began to talk together. And that monitor went from beep, 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 to beep, 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 to beep, beep, beep. It was highly healthy to meet her where she was at. That woman became a follower of Jesus. It was about a year and a half later. But we met her where she was at and let God do his work and just walk alongside in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Does he need us? No. Does he want us? Yes. He wants us to know him and love him more deeply and sweetly. He wants to use us and shine through us. He wants our cracked pot to reveal the treasure that lies within. He chooses to use you as his ambassador. And that's where the conversations with people come in. And the question for you, the diagnostic question, what kind of spiritual questions are you having with the patients Jesus brings in your life? And I can answer that in three hours. We have three different sessions on faith flags voted the most helpful principle from Sailing Solution and Grace Prescriptions is how to raise faith flags in your everyday conversation. How do you begin to tell faith stories? And then how do you write faith prescriptions? And I'm not going to go through those, but I want to just give you a couple of snippets into faith flags, faith stories, faith prescriptions. First of all, there is a video on these, these principles. It's vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O.com, 196-111-041. So 196-111-041. Faith flags are just part of a normal conversation. When Bill Peel was writing The Saline Solution, he called me up and he said, I need a list of about 20 of your faith flags. I said, I don't have one. He was quiet for a second. He said, uh, you told me you use faith flags. I said, I do. He said, well, just send me a list. I said, Bill, I don't have one. It's not technique. It's not memorized. It just happens. He went, have Tish follow you around and write them down. And that's what she, that's what she, it's a normal part of conversation. These aren't faith sermons. These are two, three, four, five words. They reveal that you have a spiritual dimension. You've already taken a spiritual assessment. Now you've introduced spiritual word into discussions. They allow you to watch for, but don't demand a response. And they create opportunities for further discussion. Our uh, Jewish synagogue had a, uh, a rabbi who died very young of a sudden heart attack. And his wife's name was Marion, and I use her wife, her name with her permission. She became so angry at God for taking him. And she left the synagogue and, and turned her back on God. She was so angry at him. And so I learned this with my spiritual assessment. And under the do part, she said, you do nothing. In fact, if you mention God, I'm out of here. Okay, I get it. I get it. She came to a, a health situation where she had to make a very difficult decision. And we talked through the pros and cons. I said, why don't we just take some time for you to consider the options. And when you come back, we'll talk about it more. And we're heading out to check out. And I just felt God's spirit say, say something. And so I looked at her. And Marion was a very small woman. She was four feet, two inches tall. And I said, Marion, listen, I know that you're mad at God. And I know you don't want me to talk about that. And that's okay. I'm happy not to. But I know this decision is going to be very difficult for you. And I, and I was wondering, could Barb and I, the next couple of weeks before you come back, could we just pray for you for wisdom? And she reached up with her little arms and she grabbed my arm. 
And with tears in her eyes and with her lips shaking, she said, that would be wonderful. And that was the breakthrough for her. And God opened up a door that ended up with Mary and become a Messianic Jew. So faith lags, kind of a, a cool little thing. It doesn't have to take even five or ten minutes, just a few seconds to say uh, something simple like, has God done something special in your life? Or just in some way to mention in my conversation with the person, God or Jesus or or that type of thing, will open the door to the patient. And so as I got to talk to her, she was troubled by her son's behavior and all of that. And so... In light of that, then I was able to come out and make a statement that, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about the raising of children. And just throwing a faith flag out there makes it real easy to see where they're at, if they're interested. And more times than not, what happens is they are absolutely thrilled to find a doctor who will talk about their faith publicly. And they'll, they respond in incredible ways. I'd like to run a few more tips. That's just a vignette that I'm going to skip. Faith prescriptions, a recommendation to do something, to read something. It's an opportunity for your patient to make, take the next step in their spiritual journey. They can be simple. They can be you know, verbal recommendations. They can be written on a prescription pad or on a, a checkout form. They can be written on stationery. Uh, but faith prescriptions, I always recommend, be recorded in the chart for two reasons. Number one, I can remember I gave it, and then number two, I can check for compliance when they come back. And I'm sorry to have gotten a little bit chatty and running behind, but I'm going to skip the faith prescriptions video. But is bringing up spiritual issues in a, in a clinical visit something that's going to be harmful? And what uh, I wrote in my systematic review based upon the literature, and this review is in your handout, by re- I, this is a quote from that, that review, by respecting, respectfully exploring spiritual topics with patients who are open, we are much more likely to help than to do harm. But we need to recognize that professional problems can occur when well-meaning healthcare professionals push their faith on someone who's opposed to discussing religion. However, rather than ignoring it in all patients, why not just ask a question or two to find out who wishes to explore it and who wishes not to? In my experience, most people want to. So the ethical standard for spiritual interventions is no different than the ethical standard for every intervention. And that is respect for the patient, their autonomy, their right, if they're competent, to make their own decisions sensitivity to where they are, not only what they need, but what they desire, and then permission to present or to talk or to go on. The principle that I teach my students and residents, don't be pushy, but don't ignore. Everyday missionaries concentrate on conversation, not conversion. Remember, evangelism isn't just pushing someone over the edge to make a decision. Evangelism is every interaction we have with pre-believers. And if we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God, we can become one of those 25 voices that he will use. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
And I love Clarissa Esty. She says, ours is not the task of fixing the entire world, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. So when it comes to, we've talked about that conversational that's missional, there's the doing, there's the work that is, is missional. And I want to go through a very quick little theological explanation of combining doing and saying. So Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5.13, says to you believers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the, underfoot. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, in the exact same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's how I like to think about this. Light is living the good news. Light is living the good news. Salt is speaking the good news. So light, I think, involves three things. The first is competence. Remember, Dr. Young said, being filled with the Spirit is no excuse for sloppy medicine. So I had a medical student who called me several months ago and said, I'm really having problems up here at University of Colorado because I've got this church activity and this church activity and this church ministry. It's just real hard to get time to study. I said, that's your job, Bubba. God wants you to be good. If he's called you to medicine, God wants you to be the best dead gum doctor you can be. He calls us to competence in doing good work. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do. The Greek word that's translated whatever there is a fascinating word. It means literally whatever. I know theology. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. This student had a split heart. Not a split heart about Jesus, but a split heart about the work God had called him to do and church work. And he needed to make a decision. What's God calling you to? Whatever it is, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Now about brotherly love, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, and to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Doing good is part of your witness. It's part of bearing witness. People don't care if you're a good person until they know you're a good health professional. If you want people to pay attention to your faith, you first have to pay attention to your work. Besides, competence is character that's demonstrating integrity in everything that you do. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Without a word. Your competence and your character become part of bearing witness for the king who lives within you. It's not enough to do good work. There's got to be something attractive about you personally. And thirdly, 
added to competence and character is compassion, displaying kindness. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.4, each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of your patience. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So yes, there is the do, but there is also the speak, and they have to go together. So salt is speaking the good news. Now, I'll have students and residents say, well, St. Francis of Assisi said, (laughs) preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. So we really don't have to use words. Three problems with that quote. The first problem is, he never said it. (laughs) I think someone who wanted to shut you up said it, but he never said it. Here's the only thing that I can find that he said about that. This was in the Franciscan Rules, 12th chapter. No brother should preach contrary to the word of God. However, all the friars should also preach by their deeds. Second, no one is that good, Elton Trueblood said. You're not good enough. To not use your words. He said the living living deed is never adequate without the support the spoken word can provide. This is because no life is ever good enough. The person who says naively, I don't need to preach. I just let my life speak. Is insufferably self-righteous. What one among us is so good that he can let his life speak and leave it at that? And then thirdly, it's terrible theology. One theologian wrote, you see, using that statement is a bit like saying, feed the hungry at all times. If necessary, use food. (laughs) For Christians, the gospel is good news. It's what the word literally means. For evangelicals, our name speaks of the commitment to evangelism defines us. The good news needs to be told. And I think Jesus' commission to his disciples is kind of clear. In Matthew 4.23, Jesus went, as an example, he went, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing. Not and or, not or, but proclaiming and healing. And when he sent out the disciples, guess what he sent them to do? This is in Luke 9.2. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So it's competence, character, compassion, living the good news. Salt is speaking the good news. And it's conversation that is missional. The bottom line is that when you've been hearing from Jesus, step one, when you've been seeking first the kingdom of God, step two, when you've been hanging and talking and having missional conversation with people, step three, when you're doing good in his name, step four, people are going to, Realize they can trust you, and they're going to begin to ask questions. In fact, it's not going to be unusual for them to ask questions. So Peter says, now remember, Peter was a very shy, shrinking violet, right? (laughs) No. Right? The old foot-in-the-mouth guy. Peter wrote this. This is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared. Every minute, every day. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. So that means every person you see, every appointment, every friend, you got to preach to them, right? No, because that's not what Peter said. There are people who teach that because they put a period there. But Peter said, be prepared always to make a defense, an apologia for the faith that lies within you, 
when asked. But do this with gentleness and reverence. The gentleness is a word that's used to describe a woman holding her newborn to her breast for breastfeeding. It's that gentle and that caring and that loving. And the reverence is entering a holy of holies with your shoes off. Are your friends and colleagues asking about your faith? If not, either your salt's not salty enough or your light's under a bushel basket. Are your patients asking? If not, you're not salt and light. And that's a hard thing for me to say. But I think it's true. But as you begin to become salt in life, they will begin to ask. And when they do, it is a holy moment. It's just a holy moment. I asked a young 23-year-old woman not too long ago, if I, at the end of a visit, she, she was in for a minor medical thing. I said, uh, because of my personal faith, one of the things I like to do at the end of an appointment is just a real short prayer. Would that be okay? And she said, no, absolutely not. I said, that's fine, no problem. And it was a real negative type of thing, but she left, and I thought, I don't know if I'll see her again. I, I picked up in her spiritual history, I didn't pick up anything negative. She wasn't active in church, but she had been active in the church as a child. <clears throat> she did come back, and I just continued to see her. Then after several months, at the end of the visit, she said, do you remember when you asked me if you could pray for me? I said, I think I do. <laughs> she said, could I tell you why I reacted the way I reacted? I said, I-, I would appreciate that. She said, I was very active in church as a young girl, but a youth leader uh, abused me uh, violently, sexually and uh, physically and verbally for many months. And when you asked me that, it, it was a terrible trigger for me. And I apologize. She apologized. What an honor. What an honor. What a holy moment. So I took her hands and I said, um, thank you that you can trust me enough to, to share this with me. Thank you. It was just that sweet, holy moment. When someone asks, be ready, but with respect and hope. So if your friends and colleagues are not asking, do you need to be more salt and light? This is a uh, woman that I work with, a physical therapist, and as we began to flesh out some of these principles in our practice, she had a very interesting experience I want you to to listen to. I also do home visits. I remember one morning asking the Lord to just utilize me any way he could. And I didn't do that every day. This one day I felt impressed to do that. And as I was driving out into the country and went to this patient's home, never seen her before, went in, uh, found out the woman had cancer. She was walking around the house, um, seemed to be doing very, very well, but she said she was in a lot of pain. And we just started talking about um, eternity. She just seemed to want to talk about death and the hereafter. And so I asked her um, if she knew the Lord, and she said, Oh, you speak like my daughter. And uh, she told me a little bit about her daughter's belief in Christ, and she didn't know a whole lot about it. So I started telling her about assurance of heaven, that Christ will give you that when you um, turn your heart over to him. how a friend of mine had done that, and I know today I had assurance that she was in heaven today. And she said, "Can I know him now?" 
I was floored. I mean, you want to be prepared. You, you want to share with people. And then when they respond so quickly, sometimes you're shocked, taken back. So um, I asked her if she had a Bible. And, um, I usually carry a four laws book with me, but of course I didn't have it that day. And um, so we just went over some scripture, and, um, that especially in First John, where it says that, I tell you these things that you might know that you have eternal life, but he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son does not have eternal life. And then um, I prayed with her, and um, she asked forgiveness and turned her heart over to God. And um, she was so excited, she wanted to go right out and tell her husband. And um, then after we completed the treatment, and I went home, I, I got a call. A couple days later, she was in the hospital. And a week later, I read her obituary in the paper. I had no idea that she was that bad. But God had taken that time. And that was a divine appointment to me. I don't usually do that, but it was clearly directed by the Holy Spirit to share with her that day. The rest of the story is that my nurse had spent time with that lady's daughter because that lady's daughter was so concerned about her mama and not knowing the Lord. And uh, so Leticia taught her how to pray for her mother and how to begin to introduce spiritual things to her mother. And then Joanne shows up. And Joanne leads her to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And then I saw her in the, the day before she got really sick and had a chance to talk about assurance of salvation and admit her to the hospital to my partner uh, who took care of her. And when she passed away the next day, uh, John was with her along with uh, her family as she had this glorious passage uh, into glory. And two of the children who witnessed that wanted to know more, and John was able to lead them to Christ. It was just, a, But it wasn't one of us. It was the body of Christ working together and Christ's Spirit calling out each of us to be ambassadors. Well, the last thing I want to go over with you is ministering through prayer. Uh, Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we reach patients who are in times of need, and we can join, bring them with us in approaching uh, he who knows our frailties and he who knows our faults. And the, James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so besides just praying for patience, we have the option of praying with patience. And uh, Grace Prescriptions has an entire module on praying with patience. I love pastor and theologian J. Sidlow Baxter. He says this, Men may spur our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. So as we close our time with our patients saying goodbye, good luck, see you next time, pay your bill, are there some of them that we could say, I know this is a lot that you're going through now. I can't imagine how hard this is, how difficult this is. Would you mind if I prayed for you about this? I've only ever had two patients say no. One I told you about, the 23-year-old girl. The other was a mother and a child from Myanmar. They uh, were Burmese uh, immigrants. And when I asked them if I could pray at the end of the first visit, you thought I tased them. I mean, it was like they both jumped back and said, no, 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 no. 
No. No, 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 no. No, backing out the door. No, no, no. No, it's like, okay, fine. We don't have to. We don't have to. They kept coming back to me and finally revealed what happened. And it was that before they left uh, Myanmar, a, one of their Buddhist priests had told them, if a Christian invites you to church or, or if they want to pray with you, don't. Because they're cannibals. <laughs> they really want to eat you. No, this is true. Because they drink blood. And, and they eat flesh. And so when I was being real sensitive, it would be okay if I said a prayer. They heard, I'd like you for lunch. <laughs> and they, when they told me this, they got so tickled telling me the story. And I said, well, why'd you come back? <laughs> and the daughter said, because we know you love us. One visit, just one time. Be okay if I prayed with you. And patients who say yes to this often assume you're going to pray letter, but why not just say, can I just pray right now? Just real quick. Because a prayer spoken out loud directly to God on behalf of my patient lets them know that he's real, at least that he's real to me. And that I'm willing to invite him into our distress. My most common prayer now with patients at the end, especially first patients, is I'll say, uh, is it Tamara? Tamara, can I pray with you? And she says, yes. I'll stick my hand out. And you can be a a Muslim woman. And I'll stick my hand out. And they'll take my hand. And I'll put a hand on her forearm. And I'll just say, Lord, thank you for the privilege you give me to care for Tamara. Would you give me wisdom as I do? I'm not pushing prayer. I'm just letting them know it's important to me. And, and... That I'm asking for wisdom. And I think that people kind of like, kind of like that. Uh, keep it short. Keep it simple. Don't tell God what he already knows. Uh, I had a big old truck driver named Bob. I'm going to run out of time, but i got to tell you about Bob. The guy was massive. And he was in for a DOT exam. And we actually did real exams. So at that time, digital rectal exam was part of quality care. So I did his exam, and he had a big nodular left prostate lobe. So you need to have somebody look into that. He came back, did a transrectal biopsy, had a glycine 7 adenocarcinoma, chose to have nerve-sparing prostatectomy, non-robotic, as his treatment. And so I always scrub in surgery with my patients. So when I had done his spiritual history, I said, is God, faith, prayer something that's important to you or not? And he said, and I quote, hell no. So I, that was the G question. So the O question, I said, are you now, have you ever been part of a faith community? He said, GD, no. And I did not ask him the do questions. But it was obvious that something toxic had happened in his past. Well, the morning of surgery, I walked in to greet him and his wife and just ask how they were doing, any questions or concerns they had. They had none. And I always pray with patients before surgery or before or after a delivery or before a procedure. And uh, so I wasn't. I was going to leave, and I just, a still, small voice said, it's okay. So I said, Bob, listen, I know that faith and prayer is not something that's important to you. He said, you're right. I said, but it's real important to me. And I always offer patients before surgery an opportunity for a quick prayer. And if you don't want that, that's fine. But if you do, that's okay. And I'm glad I was holding on to the gurney, because he said, that'd be all right. (laughs) And I began to pray, and that 
truck driver's massive callous hands came up and grabbed both of my hands, just like a vice grip. And when I said amen, he did not let go. And I looked up and he had big tears coming down his cheeks. And he wiped them with his free hand. And he looked up at me and he said, you're not going to tell anybody, are you? <laughs> and I said, what, that, that you cried or that we prayed? He said, no, nah, that we held hands. <laughs> I tell that with his permission. Six weeks, almost to the day, six weeks later, Bob came to the Lord. I was not involved with that part of the process. I was involved early on. But that man, I mean, some people are saved and some people are saved. He was saved and saved. (laughs) He was converted. And he became our promise keeper guy in town. And there are hundreds of people, men in Kissimmee, Florida, that are Christian because of Bob. Ministering through prayer is a powerful ministry. Nothing is more supportive to a Christian family than to have them know that their doctor is relying on the same God that they ought to get their child well. And I have found that even churchy people that I wouldn't say were born again, they think that's great. And uh, I've never had a person who, except that one minister I told you, got up and flounced out of my office, who seemed to object to my uh, sharing my faith with uh, someone said, come quick, because one of the reporters had killed over and he had been a person with a previous history of bypass surgery. He was on substantial cardiac medicines, and they wanted a doc fast. Well, I went there, took a quick history, ascertained that he really probably had a vasovagal response, spoke with the 911 on the way in, and then asked he and his wife, would you like me to pray for you? That was very meaningful in their lives, as his wife said afterwards. But also a number of the reporters came up and said, that spoke to us. We have uh, a ministry of intercessory prayer that the patients can participate in in terms of sharing their concerns with us about themselves or family members. It's worked great in our office. We have a prayer board located in our laboratory. We ask them first if uh, we would like to uh, have them uh, be prayed for by our staff. And uh, if so, we put them on the prayer board. And then we also ask them if they would like uh, us to pray with them right there. Most of the time, patients open the door. They are excited to find that here is a physician who actually prays. And uh, many times, what, what, what has encouraged me the most is six months and 12 months later after I have prayed with the patient, and I may not actually remember the prayer or what was said, those patients will come back to me and say, you do not know the impact you made in my life at that time. So I think as physicians, we don't realize how even a sentence, a short prayer that might last 60 seconds or two minutes as we go through our day, as long as we're being sensitive to that patient and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we don't realize what a deep impact that can make on our patients. And I think that has been the thing that mostly has encouraged me to continue with it because I see that their lives are being changed and that God is doing things way beyond anything that I'm aware of. Another thing we did on our pre-op checklist the nurse would go down, have you had any allergies, what previous surgeries, family histories, and all this. Last question, would you like the doctor to pray with you before surgery? Once I started doing that, I only had one patient after that say no. People, by and large, want you to intervene in their lives. 
Now, we may have a skewed population, but I suspect in any place, in any practice, there will be a substantial number of patients who want the doctor to pray with them when crisis comes along for sure. Our, our family dentist group uh, all did grace prescriptions. The Christian group, they all did grace prescriptions as a group. Next time I went in for my dental cleaning, Patty, who's my hygienist, was going through my history at the end. She said, oh, by the way, uh, Dr. Rickley is praying with his patients now at the end of the visit. Would you like him to pray with you? I said, oh, he picked it up. He picked it up. I said, that, so, so I said, is there extra charge? <laughs> so, so, I mean, with my UC Health patients, I'll often at the end, I'll say, now don't tell them I prayed with you. It's not that I get in trouble. It's just they'll charge you for everything. That's kind of cute. John Bunyan, I love this quote from John Bunyan. Think about this. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray before you pray. You get that? You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray before you pray. We pray because Jesus prayed and because of prayer, what he does through prayer to us, to the church, and to others. So it's a shield for the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. And Samuel Chadwick in the late 1700s said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. But he laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. He trembles when we pray. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. So if you'd like to explore this topic, what's the literature say about prayer? What do the randomized trials say? What are some of the concerns that you should think about? I did an article for today's Christian doctor called Praying with Our Patients, and that's available in the article handout. So as a Christian professional, you have a powerful healing resource that not all health professionals have. It's the gift of prayer. Use it wisely. So to end our time, we've got a whole bunch of interventions from praying for patients, spiritual assessment, faith flags, faith stories, faith prescriptions, praying with patients, spiritual consults, or referrals. But for everyday healthcare missionaries, spiritual interventions are not only good work. They demonstrate integrity. They demonstrate kindness. They allow us to practice high-quality, evidence-based, whole-person care that is now required by multiple national agencies. The ability to identify and address patients' spiritual needs has become a clinical competency. It's not an optional activity. It's a clinical competency. Assessing and integrating patient spirituality into the healthcare encounter can build trust and rapport, broaden the relationship of the healthcare professional and the patient, and increases effectiveness. And you say, I don't even know if I have time for this. Jesus says, Matthew 28, 19, right? The Great Commission. Go and make disciples. This has been really helpful for me. The Greek principle that's translated go can be translated while going. 
while going. Jesus isn't saying go as, as like, go find more time in your day to do this, right? You're already pretty busy. It's not, that's not what he's saying. While you're going through your hectic day, take a little bit of time to make disciples. In other words, your hectic life can be a missional life. Here's the key. When you're spiritually intentional, when you have that spiritually intentional lifestyle, that missional lifestyle, it's not overwork. It's overflow. So everyday healthcare missionaries walk into hectic schedules filled with the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. But, big, big but, you cannot do this alone. You were not designed to do it alone. You were not called to do it alone. That's not to say there there haven't been wonderful missionaries in the past who have done things alone, who have been called uniquely to do single ministries. That happens. But that's not the general way that God works with most of us. You're not called to. You're not designed to. You're designed to be part of the body of Christ. And so... Find someone else in your community, in your school, in your workplace. And if you can't find them, begin to pray. God will bring them there. And the testimony of graduates who sit where you're sitting today in previous years is God answers that prayer. He'll either show you someone or he'll bring someone or someone's in. God is designed for you to be alone. You say, why have you left me alone? You never ask for help. And I'll bring it, if you will. Our residents who are in China are involved in the uh, Andrew Project. I'm going to do this real quick for you. This uh, originally came out of the Billy Graham Association. This is as far back as I can trace it. It's now, it now resides in the Truth Project. But this is really cool. Is If you just team up, even just with one other believer, wherever you're called now to be, and for some period of time, three months, six months, nine months, a year, a school year, form a little missional accountability group. And just be accountable to pray for each other, to meet and touch base. It could be email or text or Instagram or what have you, at least once a week to sort of touch base and to share with each other what God's doing as you become an everyday healthcare missionary. Now, here's kind of the practical to-do part of it, is each member prays about and then selects five non-believing patients, friends, colleagues, the five people that you interact with, non-believers. And each day, pray three things for yourself. Pray that God will open the patient's heart, or your friend's heart, or your colleague's heart. That he'll cultivate receptivity. Secondly, that God will open an opportunity for you to share. And the key to that opportunity is when asked. When asked. And thirdly, God will open your mouth <laughs> when, when the question comes, that there's receptivity, opportunity, and boldness. And then, and then, each month, give each person you're praying for a gift. It might be a letter. It might be a postcard. It might be an email. It might be an Instagram. It might be a book. It might be an article. But for each a phone call, for each person you're praying for, to touch base at least once a month. And then in that time period, 
specifically look for an opportunity to share. They call it in China your hope story, but your personal testimony. And at the end of that time period, meet together one last time and share what God's done. And it just can be remarkable. So this building a basic missional community, I cover it in an article that I did for today's Christian doctor called Efficient Care and Spiritual Care. Can you do both? And the answer is yes. And that article is in the article handout for you. There, that's kind of basic missional community, if you will. There's also an advanced one, and I don't have time <clears throat> to go in today. But uh, building a spiritual care team in your institution, even if it's a secular institution of building a spiritual care team that requires two people. It only requires two people. It requires a healthcare professional who's a follower of Jesus and an institutional employee who is a follower of Jesus, uh, particularly if that person is, a, say, in a nursing capacity, a, a head nurse or in administration or something like that. The model for this advanced missional community has been developed at Duke University. Uh, my friend Hal Koenig, Hal was a family doctor who went back and became a psychiatrist, and he heads, heads the Duke uh, Division of Religion and, and Medicine. Uh, it's the Duke University Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health. And they're working with the Adventists, now called the Advent uh, System, nationally for both their outpatient facilities and their inpatient facilities. But this healthcare team can be applied, it's designed to be applied in any healthcare institution, outpatient or inpatient. And the encyclopedic article for how to do this is called The Spiritual Care Team Enabling the Practice of Whole Person Medicine. Dr. Koenig wrote this for the, for the um, journal Religions. The URL to get to this article, it's tinyurl, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash P-A-T-K 4C5. P-A-T-K, the number four, letter C, and five. And it'll tell you exactly how, not only how you can do this, but why secular institutions will want to do this. And there's some both financial and patient satisfaction issues that I don't have time to go So to close our time together, and I want to leave some time for questions and answers, I love the writing of Solomon. He says, two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to lift them up. We're the body of Christ. We're designed to work together. Find people around you to be salt and light, to hold you accountable that you can pray with and for also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? How do you keep that spiritual spark going? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And you may be in your institution, your skill, a little tiny squat. But it don't matter. When you have Christ lifting you up, and your buddy, the, two, the power of two is stronger than the power of one. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And I love this picture of the patient being lifted up into their creator's arms by, by a team. It's just being overseen by one little prayer partner there. <laughs> Two are doing the work and one's the chief resident, I think. 
So Grace Prescriptions, you can find it at the CMDA booth. For those of you listening by tape, cmda.org, you can get more information on Grace Prescriptions. It does come as a video course, and you can use it in small groups, uh, Sunday school classes, healthcare Sunday school classes, or by yourself. But just to conclude our time together, uh, Koenig, in an article for ISR in Psychiatry, concluding the literature about the association of spiritual health to physical, relational, and emotional health, said the research findings, a desire to provide high-quality care, and simple common sense all underscore the need to integrate spirituality into patient care. At stake, Koenig says, is the health and well-being of our patients. The health and well-being. If we choose not to incorporate spirituality, particularly for those with religious struggle, we condemn them to, etench, to eternal morbidity, but increased physical morbidity. Why would you do that? Like Dr. Young says, it's spiritual malpractice not to bring all of who we are into all of who the patient is. But not only at stake is the patient's health, but Koenig says also at stake is the satisfaction that we as healthcare professionals experience in delivering care that addresses the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. And we're starting to see a literature now that shows that men and women who incorporate all of whom they are, they bring their spirituality to work, have more satisfaction, personal and professional, than they did before. That burnout monster that we have, there's a salve for that. And it's taking care of people. And there's not a person in this room that wasn't called to take care of people. You wouldn't be here if that wasn't your call. And the system's trying to beat the hell out of you. But there's an antidote. And that's becoming an everyday missionary of walking through that sick, stinky muck. If you're not of a theological background that believes in purgatory, you are if you have an EMR. You're walking through that muck, and you didn't know that in that muck are pearls, the little oysters, those divinely designed appointments. And the first patient you see Monday didn't make that appointment a week ago or a month ago. That appointment was made before time. And that's what you can walk into. You'll be a different person. So I wrote this in my systematic review. The evidence to date demonstrates trained or experienced clinicians should utilize spiritual interventions and encourage positive spirituality with their patients and that there is no evidence that such therapy is harmful. None. And you say, what do you mean by positive spirituality? What's that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I was able to define it, and the literature actually accepted it. So a positive spirituality involves a growing, internalized, personal relationship with the sacred or transcendent. Now, I'm writing for a secular journal. so but It's a personal relationship. It changes your behavior, and it changes your belief. It's, it's, it's a personal, internal Relationship. It's not bound by race, ethnicity, economics, or class. It promotes the wellness, welfare of self and others. It doesn't harm. And see if you can guess what article I got this from. It also 
results in the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I did cite my source on that. So it's highly ethical for healthcare professionals and, and healthcare systems to assess their patient's spiritual health and needs and to provide indicated and desired spiritual interventions. Clinicians and healthcare systems should not deprive their patients of the spiritual support and comfort on which their hope, health, and well-being may, may hinge. If I wrote this now instead of then, I would say life expectancy because of the religious struggle literature. So Arnie Sagul says, assessing and integrating patient spirituality into the healthcare encounter can build trust and rapport, broadening the physician-patient relationship and increasing its effectiveness. But most of all, most of all, brothers and sisters, putting on those spiritual antennas, walking into each day, hearing from Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God, entering into conversation that is missional, and doing good, competent, compassionate work in the name of Jesus allows us as followers of Jesus to find where our patients are in their spiritual journey and join the Holy Spirit in his work as everyday missionaries. You can do it. You're called to it. If the greatest empowerment in history that resides in you, just do it. So for a copy of the slides and the reference articles, once again, Walt Laramore, W-A-L-T-L-A-R-I-M-O-R-E, at Mac.com. And we've got a few minutes for questions or comments. And I'm going to ask you, because we're taping this, if you have a question or a comment or a criticism or a critique, if you'd walk up and take the mic for, for that. So anybody... In Yeah, coming up, if you would, just, just for the purpose of people that are listening at home. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm not going to be saying my name because of the tape, but um, I'm originally from Pakistan, and I'm uh, serving as a missionary to Muslims in Dayton, Ohio. And my background is in dentistry, and I was practicing as a dentist and started doing residency in oral and maxillofacial okay. surgery. But uh, the essence of doing it wasn't the same what I grew up with mm-hmm. in Pakistan. So I gave it up, came here, did a master's in health administration. And yeah. presently, I'm looking in the process of getting into it, uh, like getting my dentistry license. Mm-hmm. So uh, to do that, I got to write a SOP personal statement. And for me, U.S. is kind of like a new system. Up in Pakistan, we would talk about spirituality, but as soon as we say that Jesus is Christ, that's a big issue. So we couldn't state that or quote that. That would be a blasphemy. Up here, uh, I was living on the East Coast, so a lot of people told me not to mention religion, like keep it out of it. (laughs) And this is a really uh, awkward kind of a situation. I was sitting in an Indian restaurant with a pastor, and I was talking about uh, religious <coughs> Islam, and I was looking around if there's a Muslim sitting, and he might get bothered, and he, because I was kind mm-hmm. of afraid. Mm-hmm. And this pastor was talking about the liberty of religion in U.S. and all <coughs> that side, and he was looking around if there's somebody who might get 
angered by it and attack him. And for me to kind of quote or write about my spiritual uh, testimony when I'm writing out to uh, any medical school, college, or hospital, or spiritual site, is that accepted at this moment in U.S.? Yeah. Great question. By the way, um, this, I have this. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe after. Maybe after. So, so, a great question. How, if I could summarize, how do I interact with the culture? Because I, as a follower of Jesus, I want to be salt and light. Yes. And so, just as we, I think, I recommend that we know where our patient is, we need to know the culture we're interacting, where it's at. So there are uh, healthcare schools where if you said, I- I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to preach to everyone I can, and if they turn Jesus down, I'm going to tell them they're going to hell. Probably not going to get admitted. I'm just guessing. You know, Maybe not even to the Christian schools. Right? Because I, I took my son Scott to... We used to date. I dated my child, all my children. So I took him to a restaurant. And he got a burger, and he started to sprinkle some salt on it. And some fool had unscrewed the top, and the whole salt, salt shaker came on. Now, salt's good, but it's a, a great flavoring. It's a terrible fertilizer. You know, it's too much. And so to be wise and communi- use wise communication, not to hide anything, because we want to be prepared if people ask, But if an institution is looking for competence, either intellectual competence or school competence or whatever it is, I want to show them that competence. So, for example, in spiritual conversations, there are places where I would not use the word Jesus in cultivation if it's going to build an obstacle. Right? There are many situations in America where I won't use the word sin in cultivation. Why? It builds obstacles. Many secular Americans assume that sin is our way of telling them not to do things they want to do. But who, could you, who do you know that if you ask, ever done something wrong in your life, would say, nope, not me. Who do you know that you could ask, um, do you ever do, you ever do something you wish you could take back? Say something you wish you could take back. They wouldn't say, yeah, I did that. Well, we can talk about wrongdoing very comfortably can't talk about sin in cultivation. Now, when we get to sowing, we've got a relationship. Now we can begin to introduce those words. We have to. But being very wise in how we approach people. So when I went to med school, I actually applied to seminary and to med school, and I used different language on both applications. Not because I was hiding anything from one or the other, but I was being wise in how I communicated. And that's what Scripture demands of us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Afterwards, we could look. <laughs> okay. Blessings on the journey. Thank you. Our time's about up, so we'll stop there. Let me, can I say a quick prayer for you guys? So, Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters that you called here today not to listen to me, but to listen to you. So, Father, thank you for how you have spoken. May no one here feel any guilt Because that only comes from the father of all lies, from Satan himself, who wants to kill and rob us. But, Father, may conviction that has come come from you.
Because you have called us into an abundant life, a full and meaningful life, in which we represent you as wise ambassadors in all we say and do. And so for what you do in us and through us with these, your principles, Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Really Today, fun. Deep